You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant in the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. So earlier in July, we had a a couple of uniquely powerful earthquakes for the Central Valley, uh, like a 4.9 in Escalon or something like that, and then in the the hills east of us. And everyone was sort of freaking out about these earthquakes. I talked to my son on the phone, and he's like, the house was swaying back and forth. And I talked to my wife, uh, who was a small girl in the 89 Bay Area earthquake. She lived in Gilroy, right near the epicenter, and she was like, "Uh, that was no big deal. In fact, she didn't even feel the earthquake. Everyone else is like freaking out about this earthquake. So I come home, I start reading the news, checking out, getting the scoop on it. And I read about, or actually saw a video uh, up in the hills, up on the 395 in, in the mountain hills. There's someone that took a video with their phone of these giant boulders that had fallen right in the middle of the road. And it had stopped traffic coming both ways, not just like little bumps in the road or like a slight slowdown, but it had blocked the path for both uh, oncoming traffic. And there were people that had stopped and gotten out of their cars and were literally trying, failing, but trying to move these boulders that were like the size of a human body. I've got this rock in my front yard that has become a permanent fixture because I am incapable of moving it, and it's like the size of a cat. So imagine a boulder being massive and trying to move it unsuccessfully. Jesus is described in the scriptures in a lot of ways. The Lamb of God, our Redeemer, uh, the Victorious One. He's described as the King. He's described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But here and elsewhere in scripture, he is described as, drumroll. Thank you, drummers. All right, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Jesus is a rock of offense that lands right in the road. And he's a stone that you will either stand on in faith or you will stumble over in unbelief. Think about Jesus as he's described here. Jesus is a massive, immovable rock that lands right in the middle of your path and forces you to deal with it. Jesus disrupts our pursuits, whether they are irreligious pursuits or they are religious pursuits. Jesus is a force to be reckoned with that stops us dead in our tracks. 
But not only does Jesus disrupt, Jesus offends. He's not just the rock. He's the rock of offense. You ever come across something that God has said or that God has done that, is, that really bothers you? It doesn't settle well with you? It's offensive to you? Well, if the answer is yes, that's actually a good thing. And I'm actually far more concerned about the person that has never been offended by God than the person that has. Because if you've never experienced the offense, there's a really good chance you've never experienced the rock. In this quote from uh, the prophet Isaiah, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament, the word here in the Greek for offense is the word scandalon. It's where we get the word scandalous. The good news of Jesus Christ is a breathtaking scandal. In other words, it is shocking news that stops us in our tracks and turns our religious assumptions upside down. Now, one example of this is found in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ when he told parables, a specific parable that we have in Luke 15 that has come to be known as the prodigal, I'm sorry, the parable of the prodigal son, but it is actually a, a parable of two wayward sons. And as you probably know the story, a father has two sons, and the younger of which comes to him and demands his inheritance. And after the father gives him his share, he leaves home into a far-off land, and he squanders his money on reckless living. His, he's wilding out, living as irreligiously as possible with sin up to his ears. But the money dries up, the famine hits, the fun is over, his friendships fade, and he hits rock bottom. And the, the irony here is he, he goes from living on the high hog to now feeding, feeding pigs to survive. And as he's shoveling pig slop to these pigs, he begins to drool. Now, this, is, this may be lost on us, but for a Jewish audience, this is deeply offensive. Because think about pigs and Jewish people's relationship to pigs. You don't go there. This is the lowest of the low. And yet here is this younger son feeding pig slop. And as he sees this steaming hunk of probably old and rotten pig slop, he begins to salivate and wish that he had some for himself. And it's at, that's, at that moment, he realizes, he comes to his senses, and he realizes, what the heck am I doing here? I could be way better off living in my father's house. Even if I spent the rest of my life scrubbing the floors at my father's house, it would be better than this. And so during his return home, while he's still a far distance, uh, distance off, it says that his father sees him, and he begins to run to him. And he grabs the son by the neck. Now, I imagine being the son and seeing my father running at me and grabbing me by the neck, and I would be freaked out because of what I've just done. But instead, he shocks him with grace, and he gives him a giant hug and a giant kiss. And before the son is able to get out his rehearsed speech about how he doesn't deserve to be home, and he's ready to grovel, and he's like, you know, I'm ready to come home as a slave, you know, whatever punishment that you think is best, I'm ready for it. He's bracing for it, but the father cuts him off, and he calls to the hired hands, and he says, hurry, bring this young man the best clothes, and put a ring on his finger, and he needs new sandal, sandals for his feet, and fire up the barbecue and go get the most expensive cut of meat. This is a celebration. This is my son, for we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but he's found. 
Now, this is typically where the, the retelling of the story ends, right? We're probably familiar with this part of the passage. And so far, it is a really compelling picture. We abandon God, we rebel against him in our sin, and yet he welcomes us home to return. And not as like second-rate workers groveling in his home, but as cherished children. God is not only forgiving, but he lavishes his grace on us. But the parable goes on. Jesus continues, but his older son was out in the field. And as he came near to the house, he hears the sound of music and dancing. He hears the sounds of the party, and he turns to one of the people next to him, and he says, what's the deal? And the person responds, you, you haven't heard? Your, your brother has, has come home safely, and your, and your father is throwing him a celebration. But it says in Luke 15 that he was furious. He was offended. He was scandalized. And at that point, he determined to not go back inside the house. And so his father comes out to call him in. It's, again, a picture of grace. The father meets the younger son, and the father goes out to meet the older son as well. But in an outburst, the older son says, Look, how many years have I been with you and working for you? I never disobeyed any of your commands. I was never wayward. I did everything that you said for me to do. I put my head down and I worked. I've obeyed all of your commands. But when then this son of yours comes home, I love this, he doesn't even claim him as his brother. This is what Michelle and I do when one of the kids is being wild. You, you need to talk to your son over there, right? You need to talk to your daughter. Like we disown them in our hearts. You need to deal with that. That's what this son is doing. You, this, this son of yours comes home who spent all of his money, quote, on prostitutes and partying. Then you go all out for him. What is up with that? But the father replied, my dear son, you've been with me the whole time. And everything that I have has been available to you. But we had to celebrate. This, this is, is your brother. We, we thought he was dead and he's alive. We thought he was lost and he's found. And then the curtain's closed. This is where the story just abruptly ends. There's no happy ending. There's no conclusion to this parable, and it leaves us, it leaves the original listeners and us, the readers, assuming the older son never ended up coming in. And like parables ought to do, it, it leaves us to consider our response as well. What will I do? What are we going to do with the scandal of grace? Because it's going to do one of two things. It's going to draw us in or it's going to push us away. The only thing it won't do is leave us indifferent. And so the question is, will we stand on this rock or will we stumble over it? And this parable really illustrates for us two groups of people that Paul is describing, the, the irreligious and the religious and how they responded to the scandal of the gospel in their time in the first century Rome. Even though the Gentiles, the stereotypically irreligious younger brother type people, were not trying to live according to God's standards. They were not trying to obey God. They had strayed far from him and far from his word, and yet they were made right with God. As, as Paul says, they obtained righteousness. How? Because they believed in God's grace revealed through Jesus Christ. They realized that they didn't deserve it, and they, they couldn't earn it, and so they simply received it by faith. 
But many of the people of Israel, the religious, who tried really hard to get right with God by keeping the law, by staying close to home, so to speak, and doing all the right things, the irony is that they found themselves at odds with God. As Paul says, they failed to obtain righteousness. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Why would they fail to obtain righteousness when people that weren't even trying got it? Because instead of trusting in God, Paul's saying, they trusted in their own efforts. Instead of receiving God's righteousness, they tried to establish their own. They thought they deserved it. They thought they earned it, and then they missed it entirely. One is lost and comes home. The other stays close to home and yet is forever lost. There's the scandal of God's grace being described in the later portion of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10. And there are really three themes that I believe frame this passage that help us grasp and experience what's being conveyed here so that we too can stand instead of stumble. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this passage under three themes. Paradox, pursuit, and prayer. Let's look first at paradox. Kids, you still with me? Yeah. Or adults? <laughs> okay. Paradox. There, the, Romans 9 is full of paradox. Paradox, what is paradox? Paradox means that two things seem to contradict each other. Ideas seem to clash, they challenge logical reasoning, but in the long run, they both end up turning out to be true. Examples of this are less is more, paradox. Or the end is just the beginning. Uh, or the way up is down. Or as we see in this passage, here's the paradox, those who didn't pursue righteousness obtained it, and those who did pursue it missed it. Now, typically, we love paradox when it comes to art, music, and literature, but we dislike it when it comes to real life. We tend to resist paradox when it hits close to home and it makes us uncomfortable. We live in a very, it's either this or it's that kind of mentality. Well, if this is true, then it means that this is absolutely false. Or if so-and-so is right, then everyone else is wrong. We tend to cling to the simple, Straightforward, black and white conclusions, easy, simple, moving on. When it comes to studying the Bible and studying God and his word, something similar happens. We want ideas and truth and theology to be neat and tidy and in our minds. We want the power and control to compartmentalize things. It's either this or it's that, period. It's just simple. Well, God's word said it and it's that. But what we have to remember is not only is life full of paradox. The Christian faith is marked by paradox as well. G.K. Chesterton, according to G.K. Chesterton, paradox is not just present in the Bible, some like unfortunate thing that we come across from time to time as we're scrolling through the pages. But what he noted was actually that it's at the very core of the gospel and is what makes the gospel beautiful. Think about it. God becomes man. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Well, he's 50-50? No. God is, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Well, how does that make sense? Well, that's paradox. Or how about this? Through death comes life. That through the cross of Jesus Christ, we are brought into eternal life. Or humble yourself and you will be exalted. Or God provides strength in our weakness. It's what makes the gospel beautiful. And so in his story, G.K. Chesterton, uh, Chesterton's story of coming to faith, he really wrestled 
uh, with becoming a Christian, really wrestled with Christian faith, and he would read agnostic and atheist readers, uh, writers rather, in, in order to really grapple with the facts. But what he found was that these agnostic and atheist writers were inconsistent. Because one would say, you know what, Christianity's way too optimistic. And then another author would say, you know what, Christianity's way too pessimistic. And then one author would say, you know, Christianity's way too narrow-minded. And then the other would say, no, Christianity's way too open-ended, and it's way, you know, way too vague. One would say this about Christianity, another would say this about Christianity, well, God is to this, no, 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 God is to that. And what he realized was that these extreme views and these critiques were a failure to see the full picture, a failure to see these things held in tension. And maybe that is your struggle as well. You read through the scriptures, and you're like, man, it, in some cases, it seems like God is really severe, and, and, it's, and he's harsh, and, and I have a hard time understanding why God would do things like this. And then you read through another section, and you say, it's, gosh, it seems like God doesn't even care. Like, he's just totally indifferent. I see severity here, and then I see, like, extreme mercy over here, and I, I can't make sense of it. The truth is, our view of God and the Bible— and faith, they're going to be skewed. They're going to be disproportionate. They're going to be all out of whack if we fail to see paradox, if we fail to embrace the paradox. And one of the main examples of paradox that we see in Romans 9 is this. It's God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is in control. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen, and yet people are responsible for how they think and how they act and what they believe and what they pursue. God is in control. People are held responsible. Now, the, the real logical thinking person is going to be asking this question. Wait, is God totally sovereign or are people responsible? Yes. Well, well which is it? Both. Yes. Both of them. See, there have been quite a few arguments and debates throughout the centuries of the Christian faith trying to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but I think it actually misses the point. I'm not going to try to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon was once asked, you know, how do you reconcile the two? And, and, and he said, I see no reason to reconcile friends. <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen a need to reconcile friends. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not these hostile enemies that need to, like, kiss and make up. They're not these extremes that need to sort of meet in the middle and, and compromise. But they're a beautiful friendship that have existed all throughout human history, neither of which cancel each other out or exclude the truth in the other. And so our job, my job today, is not to reconcile the two, because think about how that puts ourselves in the place of control. I'm reconciling God's sovereignty and human responsibility. All right, big shot. <laughs> That's not our job to reconcile the two. Our job is to embrace them, to linger in the mystery, to linger in the tension, and to uphold and honor both, that God is in control, and that he holds everything in the power of his hands and accomplishes things according to his will, and yet at the same time, I'm responsible for my actions. And I'm responsible for the ways that I, I carry out what I believe and the things that I pursue. And so what Paul highlights here is that what every single one of us is held responsible for is our pursuits. 
And that leads us to our second point, pursuit. Now, something important to note here is that everyone is pursuing something. Every single one of you, whether you are a child or you're the oldest person in the room, whether you're a believer or you're a skeptic, every single one of us is pursuing something, some vision of life that you believe is the right direction to run in, some goal that you are chasing, whether you've articulated it or not, that you believe that when you obtain it, it's going to make you whole, it's going to make things right again, it's going to justify your existence. Now, for some here, that object is God. For others, it may be career. For others, it may be a relationship. For others, it may be a dream or a goal of success or fill in the blank. To say that the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness does not mean that they weren't chasing after something. Again, we're all, whether we're religious or we're irreligious, have our pursuits. The question is, what are we pursuing? It didn't dawn on me until this morning that probably one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves is, what am I pursuing? What is my pursuit? What have I set my sights on and what am I chasing after? Because whether we're young or we're old, we've all determined something to run for. Now, historically, the Gentiles pursued sinful pleasures, or as Romans 1 describes, uh, dishonorable passions. This could be sex, pleasure, unhealthy relationships, greed, uh, Success. Just think of like all the carnal desires, the stereotypical things that we see in society, left and right, the hedonistic, I'm chasing after pleasure, I'm chasing after things that make me feel good kind of thing. What was happening in the first century is probably what we see a lot of today in the 21st century. And the Jews pursued righteousness according to the law. But here's the tricky thing. They were pursuing the right thing the wrong way. They were pursuing righteousness according to the law, but by their own strength. And so one was an unrighteous pursuit. That's pretty easy to like look out in society and see people like running wild and be like, well, that's the wrong pursuit. Here's the tricky part. The other group was pursuing self-righteous pursuits. And the point that Paul is making is that both are wrong pursuits. Both paths reject the gospel. Both paths are rebellion towards God. And we're going to get right to the heart of the scandal here, the, the scandal of grace here. What this means is that the sweet, kind, church-going grandma, or picture in your mind the most saintly person that you can think of, that person can be just as rebellious towards God and far from him than the person that gives God the middle finger and says, I want nothing to do with you. The person that has it all together, the model saint, the model believer, the model religious person can be just as rebellious and far from God as the person that sticks the middle finger to God and says, I'm out of here. Now, before you say, well, Neither of these categories really apply to me. Because, you know, I'm not particularly saintly or religious. I don't really look like a first century Jew, but neither am I wildly opposed to God. I'm not like out there living wild and crazy like the first century Gentiles. Let's think about this application for us today. Because not, 
just because someone isn't particularly religious doesn't mean that they aren't self-righteous. One way that self-righteousness expresses itself in the 21st century, I believe, is through self-care. In fact, as I hear about self-care products, self-care gurus, self-care plans, self-care coaches, fill in the blank, it's pretty easy to see self-righteousness. And what I mean by self-care is not like combing your hair or like taking a shower. Please continue to do that. Uh, what I mean is like an obsession with self, an obsession with and a, and a pursuit of self-improvement. An author named Tara Isabella Burton in her recent book called Strange Rights, she describes a very widely held belief. She, she actually describes it as religious dedication today to self-care. And the story, according to her, that many people are believing goes something like this, that we are born good, but we are tricked into living something that falls short of our best life. Our sins, if they exist at all, lie in insufficient self-attention or self-care, false modesty, undeserved humilities, refusing to shine bright. That's sin. We have not merely the inalienable right, but the moral responsibility to take care of ourselves first before directing any attention to others, aka I got to learn to love myself before I love others around me. We have to listen to ourselves, behave authentically, in tune with our own, what our own intuition dictates. Sound familiar? So whether it's obsession with clean eating and fitness, trying to perfect our bodies in order to feel acceptable, in order to justify our existence, or an obsession with mindfulness, trying to perfect our emotional health, or an, even an obsession with like coming to church and doing what God's word says in order to perfect ourselves spiritually. They're all means of pursuing some sort of end that is not Jesus. And while the desire may be good and right, I mean, it is a good thing to be physically and emotionally and spiritually healthy. The point is that the path is all wrong. And it's leading to a great fall. As Paul would describe, it's leading to a painful stumble because your body and your emotions and your faith, they're all gonna break down at a certain point. They're all gonna wither. They're all gonna leave you high and dry. And in the end, no matter how much effort or how much zeal we have, if the goal isn't Christ and his transforming power to heal our lives and to make us right with God and others again, we will forever fail to obtain. We will constantly be stumbling. As one commentator said, we don't have to climb to the heavenly heights to obtain it. We don't have to plumb the lowest depths to reach it. Why? Because Christ has risen from the dead to make it secure for us. The life that we are pursuing the life that we deep down desire, the life that we can't live without is found solely in Jesus Christ. And faith, faith is an active, daring pursuit of the one who first pursued us. A, a, a daring, active pursuit of Christ. What, this, what I'm not saying is that we stop pursuing. What I'm not saying is that we stop pursuing righteousness. What I'm not saying is that we stop pursuing right things like physical, emotional, and spiritual health. The point is this, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're not seeking our own righteousness. We're not seeking to perfect ourselves. We're not seeking to transform our lives. We are seeking Jesus and his transforming work through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's look finally at prayer. Prayer. How do we know that we have been made right with God? How do we know that we've been made right with God through faith in Jesus? That, what, what is the evidence that we belong to his family and, and we have come home to be with the Father? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. How do we know that these truths have hit home in our lives? And the answer is this, that we desire to see others come home as well. The evidence that we have come home is an earnest desire and prayer for others to be saved as well. And if we lack the desire to share our faith with, in Christ with others, if we somehow begin to believe that others are some, you know, just too far gone to be saved, if we refuse to plead with God to, for him to show mercy in the lives of the people around us, then it may actually be a sign that we are still stumbling upon the rock that we should be standing on in faith. Remember the older son? The older son in the parable, the kind of like forgotten, overlooked part of the story? The son who was too busy focusing on himself? The son that was way too busy and consumed on, by all the things that he had done for God and how he couldn't stand the idea of the father overlooking his good works and showing grace to an undeserving son? How he ended up excluding himself from the party? See, if our focus is on ourselves and our focus is on our performance, then we too will fail to welcome others in. We won't share our faith. We'll stop praying for people. We'll be so busy navel-gazing that we'll never even care about those people. And we may find ourselves in the long run on the outside looking in. I don't desire that for anyone here to be like the sun, just stubborn and offended and excluded. The surest way that we can join God in his pursuit of others is by praying. And here again, we, we, we linger in the paradox because God's sovereignty, God having determined who is going to be saved does not somehow diminish our responsibility to be active and intentional and eager in our prayer for other people. If anything, it motivates that prayer. It motivates us to pray. Because if God was not sovereign, then we would have no reason to pray to him. But because he is, but because our God holds eternity and life in his hands, the greatest thing that we can do is to go to him and to plead with him and to intercede on behalf of the people in our lives around us. Knowing that prayer is the means that God has ordained to accomplish what God has determined. I love this quote from the great E.M. Bounds who has a thick book on prayer. He said this, talking to men for God is a great thing but talking to God for men is greater still. Preaching the gospel is amazing, but the greatest thing that we can do is intercede on behalf of the people around us. And I don't share that theoretically. I share that as a testimony that this is true. Early in my adult life, 
when I hit my version of rock bottom, I was lost, self-destructive, on a path of, of tearing everything in my life apart. My wife, instead of leaving me, which she had good reason to, decided instead to quietly pray for me. And for months and months and months, she prayed for my salvation. She pleaded with God to show mercy in my life. So much so that when she finally broached the topic of the gospel, when she finally was ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ, all she said was this, do you understand the grace of God? And it was that question that opened my eyes, that the Spirit used to regenerate my heart and made me open to the gospel, of which I am here years and years and years later, a testimony of. Your prayers are not in vain. Your prayers are not wasted. Your prayers are not just empty, cross our fingers and hope God is listening. It, was, it is what God has ordained to accomplish, what God has determined to do. So let's pray, let's plead, and let's believe that God desires to show mercy in our time as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...